All right, everybody, it's Jean Nathan. It is Crosstown Conversations, and, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a weird kind of day because just before I came over here, I was watching uh, the cable news uh, coverage of the um, escalation of the impeachment uh, process in Washington, and, uh, of course, uh, it is just hot, hot, hot up there, and I think we are definitely moving into another phase, and when um, when the president picks up the phone to call Nancy Pelosi and, and says, what can we do together on this, you know that it is it's definitely uh, getting hot um, on, on his end, too, so, um, you know, I, I don't do that much about the national politics on the show, even though it drives me nuts and I watch the soap opera every night. I can't resist it. But there's so much else going on, and especially in New Orleans right now. I I mean, I just think that our art scene here is totally on fire. And I'll tell you what's really on fire in a positive way is the New Orleans Museum of Art. It's just just a a knockout what's going on in there on, on so many different levels, from very contemporary work in this incredible show, Bodies of Knowledge, that I saw sort of earlier on when it first opened, and I love. And we have one of the artists who's involved in that show, Mahmoud Choki. Thank you for having me. Pretty close, pretty <laughs> yeah, close. Yeah, amazing. And we also have uh, the museum's incredible curator, Katie Fall. Um, on the show with us to talk about what's happening out there. Because in addition to Bodies of Knowledge, which is a very cutting-edge, tough, tough show, but very striking and very beautiful, there's also an incredible landscape, sort of traditional landscape um, show, painting and place in Louisiana called Invent in Acadia, and it's kind of about the French territory. And then Lamentations, um, we already talked a little bit about this. We had Tina Freeman on our show um, I can't remember whether it was last week or the week before because time just is a mush in my mind. Um, but th- that show is just extraordinary because what she does is pair the um, melting ice territories of our globe with um, our swamps and marshes and shows the effect of what's happening with the melting um, ice and the rising oceans and our continuing um, loss of, of land in, in our part of the world. So it's, it's very um, important. But we are um, going to start out our show today. Because we have Mahmoud on our show, we're going to talk with him. And I, I posed you in my newsletter as a multimedia artist. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, I know music <laughs> is a, key, a core genre for you. But um, as is true for many creatives, um, you, you don't have big barriers. Well, uh, first of all, thank you so much for having us sure. here. And uh, yeah, um, actually, uh, I'm, I, can, I can present myself as a composer first, musician, multi-instrumentist, and, and yeah, a New Orleans lover now <laughs> and resident. So... So for uh, for this uh, bodies of knowledge work, 
I'm I'm more a composer, curator, and uh, and uh, a musician. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Um, and and it's it's so interesting to me that one of the things that you have focused on, and if that isn't appropriate for New Orleans, I don't know what is, is the meeting of different kinds of music and bringing them together. And um, I, I just want you to know that in my life, I've done something not quite as extraordinary as I think you've done, but I did something called the Do Drop In. Uh, and it was kind of a a riff on an, a, a club that was here that was a 24-7 club mm-hmm. where musicians came and played. During segregation days, um, African Americans needed to stay there because they weren't allowed in other hotels. And so the the club was like just on and on, and, and New Orleans musicians would, would join in, would um, sit in the acts, and, and then all kinds of different things happened. Yeah. So in the series that I produced at the Contemporary Arts Center, I was matching up all kinds of things, just uh, things that had never been matched up before. Of course, now this is more common. But tell me about the kinds of music that you, the threads of music that you weave together into the fabrics of the work that you do. Yeah. So very interesting question and uh, for so many years and that was uh, very interesting for me it's the meetings of musicians I try I study classical art music and I study classical guitar and then I studied I did I did some research about about uh, uh, North African Moroccan and Middle Eastern music but I was always interested by meeting the world outside so very young, I started traveling around the world and meeting other musicians. So, and I saw that I learned a lot when meeting musicians from India, playing with musicians from Turkey, from, from wherever. And I had an opportunity in, in Switzerland 10 years ago to, to play in a residency named Orient Occident, East, uh, West. And, uh, then, I start inviting all these musicians I meet on my travels in a beautiful castle in, in Switzerland. And that was the beginning of this experience. And I did it for 10 years now. So more than, more than like 30 nationality and like 50 musicians. And then I did it, I did other projects also in, in Romania, in South Korea, in, in Indonesia. I play in India with some musicians. So, and when I arrived, here in, in, in New Orleans, first thing I remember that I was welcomed, like I'm from here. I never felt myself foreigner. I never, I never like really felt that I'm not from here. So musician, musician from New Orleans embraced me and, 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 uh, and of course helped me to, to not just the musicians, the audience also. That's, I, I thanks a lot. So, so we create a community around and, and, uh, yeah, I remember like two years ago, I didn't speak any word in English. So, wow, yeah, you've and, made a lot of progress <laughs> since then. And, and, but we, we speak music and a lot of emotion. So, uh, and that's what, uh, Katie and the museum, uh, they came to a lot of, of my, of my show I did, shows I did in New Orleans. That's I invite musicians from all around to create something unique. And 
And uh, when I say when I say improvisation and creating something unique, it's not just bringing people together. It's too easy. Now it's that's it's the part of job and the serious the serious way. It's to know how making these people play together and if they can play together or not. So that's that's really one of the that's the things I I, I really concentrate so, so, about. So let's 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 break that down a little bit because I have to say that when I was doing it, I I was um, as not being a musician, mm. um, I was a, a little bit probably sloppier about it, you know, mm. and I was just combining chamber musicians with drummers and vocalists who had never sung together mm. together and. Um, uh, marching bands together with other kinds of, you know, just really more of a hodgepodge. Well, we don't but need to works. be music, but you don't need to be musician to 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 create something. It's it, that's the thing. Music for me, it's always about emotions. If you feel that thing, uh, and I I I did a lot, a beautiful experience created by uh, Andy, who who did amazing concerts, organized uh, amazing concerts, and at Sidebar. Uh, and and he's not musician and and, and but he he creates an ama- amazing concert Andy? there. Who's that? Yeah, Andy. Yes. Andy. Okay. Okay. And uh, and uh, and the series name Scatter Jazz. Scatter Jazz. Mm-hmm. And and yes, back to the series at, uh, at 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 Noma. It's I was thinking about inviting. And musicians, international musicians who live in New Orleans, I, I see that, but they are all New Orleans now, like me, and local musicians, and creates a sort of of a of a dialogue between 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 East and West, with not like cliche thing because just, but it's really uh, work. It's really a work uh, about how we can combine. Music from east and work from 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 west. So um, you, you mentioned that there are other international um, artists who are here in New yeah. Orleans. Um, that's you know again, I was much more involved with music in the 70s and 80s. I was out of the city for the 90s. I come back and I'm much more focused on environment and visual art than music. So I, I'm not aware of. That infusion of international art. So tell me about that. Yeah, but well, first time I arrived here, I, one of the amazing pianists I meet is he's originally from Honduras. It's uh, Oscar Rossignoni. It's one of the amazing, amazing pianists I, I ever meet. Uh, Cyril Ma, which is an amazing jazz singer, uh, f- originally from France. Helene Gillet, everybody know her, and originally from Belgium. And uh, yeah, and more and more, and uh, Jorgi Petrov and is amazing guitarist from Bulgaria. So this this uh, this great artist, they all n- n- live in New Orleans, and yeah, and they I'm bring bring, I just, I, I bring a beautiful things to the city. You know, I, I want to uh, before we go much further, I, I want to uh, uh, you know share with the audience what we're talking about because. Um, you know, this is so abstract if you're not hearing it. So I'm going to ask uh, Jazz, our um, brilliant engineer, to tune in on some of your music. And I think you picked uh, a, a piece called... Arabic Spirit. 
Arabic spirit. Arabic spirit. So we're going to play just a little bit of that so that we can make sure that people have a clue what we're talking about. Certainly, hear all the influences. I mean, um, uh, again, I'm not that knowledgeable about music from the Middle East, but obviously, you can hear those uh, elements. And uh, my husband was in Iran for a while, just before the revolution, and came back with this many cassettes of music from the area, which he was playing incessantly for quite a while. And so, I'm picking up on that. Um, but of course. The flute comes in, and it's a whole yeah. other thing. And the, the rhythm sounds very uh, not knowing anything about what I'm talking about. So um, beat me up if I'm being stupid. But it, it sounds almost like flamenco. Yeah. Elements in it. Yeah. So that's the thing. It's one of the composition I did uh, was I'm originally from North Africa. I'm originally from Morocco, and I grew up between music from Spain, Mediterranean, uh, Algerian, Middle Eastern, African. Uh, African, of course. So, yeah, so this music is, it's, it's, it's like, like, uh, it's a fusion of my influences. And, and, and the musicians who play, that's a very interesting thing. The musician who, who play in this, and this, uh, album, it's the drummer is from Algeria. The piano is from France, percussion from Spain, and the flute is from Chile. The violin play from Morocco, and like other other musicians. So, it's also in all. It's I was I was always music for me. It's an universal, and we have to play it together because it's make it's make it it's make it just better and rich than than just to be in community and like let's play just music from my country or my community. Or my, I was always against that. So our music, it's it's for all of us, and we have to play it together. It's it's, uh, it's fabulous, by the way. I loved the, thank what you I so was, much. What, what I was hearing, and um, at, what an honor to New Orleans 
that with all of those influences and on all of those places that you've been and worked, that you would settle here. So I need to understand that. Tell me about that. You said it was welcoming. <laughs> you said you didn't feel like a foreigner. Uh, or, but are you like everybody else who comes to New Orleans for two weeks for uh, for Jazz Fest and then just never leaves? Oh, yeah. So I tell you, it's 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 just a short story. Okay. <laughs> so I, I did I was I did a travel all around the world like for for uh, for uh, for two years. So I was in Asia, in Europe, and I arrived to the, the States for two months. I did a road trip from Maine until Austin. I wanted to visit all these musical cities, so Nashville, Memphis, and of course New Orleans. I was supposed to stay just four days. <laughs> First day, we arrive in Frenchman Street Uh-oh. and I enter to the Maison, and, and there was an amazing band playing. And Which I, one was that? Do you remember? I of course. He's my, he's my best friend. He's one of the the, the people I'm here now. <laughs> and so I, I was playing, and I hear this music. I said, "Wow, I love this music. I'd love to play it one time." And the the band just finished the set, and I went. I talked with the band leader. He's a Bri- Brian Seeger, an amazing guitar player, and this professor at at UNO and with my really it was in 2015 like four years ago before deciding to move and I didn't speak any words in English and just some translating and I gave him a card I bought a CD from him two days after he sent me an email he asked me to, to come to UNO to give a talk <laughs> in what language exactly <laughs> And invite me also for dinner and meet other musicians. And I, I did this talk, yeah. And musical talk. Yeah, music, it's a language <laughs> also. And, uh, and yeah, and I spent time with him, hanging out with musicians here and spent two weeks <laughs> instead of four days. And so that was the, my, my first, my introduction. first introduction to New Orleans mm-hmm. with the musicians. And when I came back, when I decided to move, like, I remember, uh, I had, like, one of my friends and brothers, we, we play all time together, Steve Lance, amazing trumpet player. And also we create, we, uh, we create this band, Mood and Land. And really, in Mood hit and, and land, and, and what? lands, lands, yeah. And we play a lot. And really, I remember he helped me a lot to to get here and have gigs. And so I I really something else. When I travel, wherever I went, I say I live in New Orleans. I see people. What? I <laughs> love to be New. So I feel like I I we live a dream. Yeah. Just being here because. Mm-hmm. For a musicians, New Orleans, it's something very original. It's Mecca. It's a form it's, of Mecca. Yeah, it's a Mecca. And that's why I say for uh, New Orleans musicians who never forget. So because sometimes people forget they are li- living in an amazing place. So that like never forget you are in an amazing place. And Yeah, yeah because there's a lot of... Um, um, grumpiness about yeah. the business of music here, which is lacking. Yeah. And there's no getting away from it. And it, it, it stunts the development of music. Yeah. And, and it's something that we all have to pay more attention to. It's not only music. No musician yeah. also. The friends, uh, like visual artists. No, yeah. uh, I have also my friend 
Korean, like like she's she's a really she's a really uh, uh, very helpful. She's always coming to my gigs. She she find the house for me to live first when I came. So she has like all this coming New Orleans community to 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 uh, welcome you. And really, I'm very grateful and blessed. And really, I thank everyone in New Orleans for for this this welcome welcome um before we go any further i want to uh, make sure that we uh because i have the tendency to get wrapped up in the story and forget that you're going to be performing several times um at the museum as part of the bodies of knowledge a show so um uh katie is sitting here quietly patiently waiting her turn uh, uh, tell me um a little bit about the schedule sure so we've over the course of this exhibition we've had mahmoud curate this amazing series of performances that both take place within the gallery itself as well as during our Friday nights at Noma. And over the course of the next several weeks, this will culminate for a special Sunday night concert, which will also be the closing of the exhibition on October 13th from 6 to 8. And that concert will be a sort of culmination. Sunday, which night? I'm sorry. Sunday, uh, the 13th of October. Okay. And that will be kind of a culmination of all of the work and conversation through music that Mahmoud has had over the course of the show. So he'll be inviting many of the musicians he's worked with in these more individual concerts back to the museum to all perform together. And kind of, I hopefully, really kind of like take the very diverse strains of musical conversations that have happened in the galleries between artists from all over the world and bring them all together to kind of close the exhibition. And the time begins what? Six to eight. Six to eight. Um, okay, so, um, and what day of the week is that? Oh, That's Sunday. Sunday. Right. Um, so, um, I think one of the things that uh, we should point out is that uh, a, a direction that has been added to the agenda for um the New Orleans Museum of Art in City Park is music. It, it's um, not that there was never music in, in the museum uh, in, in previous uh, years, but it has become a regular element. And certainly Friday nights, always, there is some kind of music, and, and you can count on it. You can go and get something to eat, look at art, and uh, there's going to be a musical performance that's going to bring you something new. So I just want to point that out. Yeah, and, and I um, think... I was going to say, I think one of the things that we're very excited about with the Bodies of Knowledge show is that it's taking what has existed at NOMA for some time of having these kind of Friday night music concerts and really making the music that we're playing aligned with the themes of the exhibitions that we're showing. And I think it's very important for a museum like NOMA in a city like New Orleans to think more expansively about creativity and the kinds of conversations that happen across art of different media. So part of the point of the Bodies of Knowledge show is thinking about all of these different ways that we communicate with each other, whether it's through dance and music or through photography and film or through installation art and kind of rather than just thinking of art simply as a thing that you know exists on a wall as a painting or exists in a gallery space thinking about all these different media that I think really come together not just in this particular exhibition but in the way that New Orleans itself thinks about what creativity is which is music and food and culture and performance and all of these things exactly and so um, let, let's talk a little bit more about the, the show bodies of knowledge because it's it's really dramatic it's it's big it's bigger than life. It's not just, as you say, it's not just small paintings on a wall. It is. Um, it, it hits you square when you walk in and you see that first work. Um, tell me about it. Sure. So the exhibition um, is Noma's first 
sort of truly global contemporary art exhibition. So it brings together 11 artists from all across the world, from Iraq and China, from um, people working on the U.S.-Mexico border to South Africa, as well as artists who are based locally like Mahmoud, together to kind of have a conversation about cultural memory and cultural preservation. So we were inspired to think about the exhibition because of the kind of, I think, very pressing conversation happening in New Orleans right now about exactly those questions. How do we preserve history? What kinds of histories do we preserve? And how do we think about even what history is as a form. And that's really where this show, I hope, comes in, where it's kind of trying to revision the very act of history, the act of telling stories, not as around singular forms in space, monuments or books, but rather as this kind of continually and constantly evolving media that everyone has the capacity to contribute to and thinking about all of the different ways constantly that we're asserting our cultural identity, sharing our stories, the way that we carry our history on our bodies, carry it through the music that we listen to and play, carry it through the ways that we represent ourselves in the world. And so the show correspondingly includes all of these different artists all across the world who are thinking about exactly that question. So, so two things I want to touch on with that. So um, first of all, I want you to give me kind of just a couple anecdotal examples of some of the work that's in the show. And then also I want to comment on the fact that, you know, our cultural legacy in New Orleans is so powerful that I've, I've taken to saying a lot lately that the past is not past in New Orleans. It is alive and very much a part of our everyday uh, existence. And so, um, but, but I think that we have certain myths and assumptions about our culture that I, I don't feel necessarily because history has a funny way of convoluting the stories uh, necessarily uh, is an accurate depiction of the trail of how our culture today came from where it came. So we tell the stories of where gumbo came from. We tell the stories of why people march in the streets. And, and every time you uh, peel one layer back, there's another layer. So our marching bands are influenced by the French and Spanish brass bands. And then you have the Mexican uh, musicians who came in here in, in the uh, 1800s who had an impact. And, and then you have, of course, you know, African-American, uh, African rhythms and so on and so on. There's so many layers. Um, I hope that this show that you've done, which touches on this and really honors it, will be part of a continuing process as in series. So what What's coming next? Where does this lead you? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, part of the point of the exhibition, which I think is true of all kinds of cultural spaces that are thinking about how we remember and respond to history, is to kind of ask us to think of history as this continually and constantly evolving thing that isn't a fixed point in space or a single story, but rather many stories that can be constantly revised, rewritten, erased, and asserted anew. And so I think part of the, part of the idea with this show, as well as all that we do, is how can we look to the past for models, as well as at the same time as doing that, also really question those models and think about the real stories that they are communicating and the fallibility of the kinds of stories that we tell about our history, the sorts of voices that are included and the ones that aren't and why, um, and kind of constantly creating a situation and environment at the museum where we're not so much telling people stories or narrating histories, but giving them a space to ask questions about them. So, you know, And at we, the same time that you have this show going on, um, 
you have such a mix of things happening that um, I, I just want to touch on because I was in the museum today actually to meet somebody for lunch, and, and, I, and I went to see Lamentations, Tina Freeman's extraordinary show that uh, juxtaposes the melting ice on the top of our globe with um, uh, what's happening here in our swamps and marshes where the land is disappearing before our very eyes. Um, and then um, the uh, the decorative arts show that's up uh, and developing is, is also extraordinary, not to mention your ongoing collections that, are, that have been there that somehow just uh, really pop and look rich. And the contemporary art show, I don't, I don't remember the name of it exactly, that, oh, Earth, it's about Earth. Yeah, Ear to the Ground. Ear to the Ground. I'm getting ready to do an Earthwork show, and I could have walked in and I said, oh, my God, they've already just done something. Mine's <laughs> going to be very different because it's going to involve a lot of ceramics, but it's a, it's a beautiful show. It is absolutely an extraordinary place to spend time right now, the New Orleans Museum of Art. You have to check it out. Share with me any other perspective that you want to add before I go talk to someone who's going to talk about our loss of um, billions of birds in our country over the past 50 years. That's our next subject, and we're going to hear from the birds. But. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only thing I would say is, you know, I think NOMA, as reflected in all the programming that we're talking about, is sort of really taking seriously this question of thinking about history, the precarity of history, the precarity of our landscape, and trying to kind of imagine the museum as a space or a forum to have those kinds of conversations and really draw people into conversation in a way that is not kind of demanding any one perspective or point of view, but rather offering people a lot of different points of access. I mean, we've been really excited about with Bodies of Knowledge is that through all of Mahmoud's hard work, through all the different artists that we have coming in from different media and forms, we have an artist, Garrett Bradley, who's working in film. We've really seen creatives across different fields coming into the museum and coming into conversation in a way that feels really new and exciting. So, I mean, I just feel really excited to be there at this moment and to sort of be part of and witness all that's unfolding at the museum as a space. And, see and, uh, and I'll tell you what I love, too, is I love walking in, seeing little kids, seeing seniors, seeing teenagers, seeing creatives, as you said, but just uh, it's a really much broader spectrum of humanity than I think is typical for some museums in some places. So it, it thrills me to see it too. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things I think that's really beautiful about NOMA is that, you know, in a city that is so welcoming but also sometimes so divided, it's a place where you really actually see these people that maybe aren't ordinarily in conversation meeting and having conversations. And so right. we take that really seriously as a... Right. And by the way, the cafe, did I mention? I mean, how could I forget to, to, to say food? And as you say, the conversations, you can walk into the cafe and you're going to wind up in a conversation with somebody you didn't <laughs> come in with. Sunday, October 13th, yes. is the um, culminating the performance concert, with yes. incredible combination of musicians. Um, we'll I, be... Uh, Ten musicians on the stage oh to be at the auditorium, and yeah, for the public, stay tuned, and we will soon uh, post the tickets at uh, the Noma website. It will be like very limited places, around 200, and yeah, it will be an amazing concert. I'm so excited for it with musicians with. Piano player, horn sections, uh, accordion. Oh, my we God. Have a lot it sounds of, like a true. A lot of instruments. It's going to be great. Yeah, it will be great. I'm so excited to it. And 
one of the things I will present the no- bodies of knowledge compositions because so I composed the music for, for the for exhibition. Show. Um, Mahmoud, I'm going to ask you to spell your name so that people can go to YouTube or wherever they go to hear music. Download uh, his album. <laughs> and, listen, and listen to uh, your music and maybe an album name. Yes, go. Yeah, it's M-A-H-M-O-U-D-C-H-O-U-K-I. M-A-H-M-O-U-D-C-H-O-U-K-I. Mahmoud Chuki. Chuki. And uh, name one of your albums. Excuse me? Name one of your albums. Yeah, Mood, M-O-O-D, and uh, you can find the album Orient Occident Le Groupe. Orient Occident Le Groupe. On Orient Occident, Occident. Occident Le Groupe. The group. So, um, it's with musicians from France, Turkey, Switzerland, Greece. It's an amazing amazing musician. I'm sure a lot of people do know, but some people may not know. Orient is basically east. Occident is it's basically west. west. Yes. It's the, the, so. the European way to, yeah. <laughs> to say East-West. Thank you so much for coming in, guys. Yeah. I was really thrilled to see the museum today. It was just, it just was beautiful. And, um, I love your music and, uh, what a wonderful person. Thank you so I much. I can, I can, I can feel that. What's your birthday? May 15. He's a, he's a Taurus. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm a terrible habit of mine. My husband cured me. He says he doesn't have a sign because he hates me talking about it, but I can't resist. Thank you for coming in. <laughs> Thank you, Jean. Thank you so much. I'm going to ask, um, uh, before I introduce Eric Johnson with the Audubon Society, who we're going to be talking about a really catastrophic and scary phenomena, the loss of just millions and millions of birds. Uh, 25% of the birds of America have disappeared over the past 50 years. Um, But by way of introduction, I want you to hear from this 16-year-old Norwegian girl who kind of hit the thing on the the nail. You guys might want to hear this for just a minute. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet, I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? You are failing us. But the young people are starting to understand your betrayal. The eyes of all future generations are upon you. And if you choose to fail us, I say we will never forgive you. This is all wrong. Um, uh, That tells you (laughs) what we're dealing with. And, And now I want you to hear what we're not hearing enough of anymore. And these are birds in Louisiana. And then we're going to talk to Eric Johnson from Audubon Society. Do you hear it? That's right. Um, uh, Eric, are you on? 
Yeah, hi, Jean. Hi. I, I wanted to hear a little bit more birds. Uh, Jez will cue us up a little bit more before the end of um, our, my time with you. Um, I'm going to let my visitors from Noma um, uh, uh, check out. Thank you Thank so you much for coming you. in. You I'll see you us. guys soon. Um, Eric, I was playing, of course, um, this young gal who's one of the major leading activists who's trying to uh, – break through the morass of our leadership that just will not acknowledge how threatened we are. But then when you see a story in the paper, as we did uh, in the past couple days, about the culmination of a a number of studies on the birds that tell you what is going on, um, it is so frightening. Explain to me, you were telling me earlier off the air about how the study that was just discussed, and and tell me the conclusions of it, please, um, is coming after years of research on the part of many people um, traveling all over and and recording and listening to birds. And and the reason I played just a little bit of birds was to remind people what it sounds like to hear them, and, and increasingly we're hearing them less and less. Right, yeah, so where do we even begin? Um, so the, the this massive story came out in Science Magazine um, a few days ago, which is the premier science you know magazine of the Western Hemisphere, and reported on 3 billion birds having disappeared over the last 50 years. So that's about a quarter um, of all adult breeding birds that have disappeared. And the, the causes and reasons for that decline are very complex, very multifaceted, and it's been um, sort of this slow trickle, um, but for you know bird watchers who have been seeing the spring migration on the coast of Louisiana for decades, um, every year they they are saying that it's just not like it used to be, and this is this is the evidence um, that that you know that that proves that. And the data that they've evaluated are come, come from all these different data sources. And so people who have participated in the Christmas bird count or the, back, or the uh, breeding bird survey, um, they've actually helped contribute to the data set uh, that, were, that were analyzed for, the, for this report. Um, but then it was also confirmed using radar data, so you can actually measure the volume of birds migrating through the night skies um, every spring and fall using radar. And the radar data are consistent with um, with the counts uh, that people are doing on the ground. So it's pretty powerful. Um, there's a very high confidence in the number that have been lost, and um, so it's 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 a call to action. And this is this is a moment to seize on and and really sort of help people understand that it's 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 not completely lost. Right there is there are solutions, and we know what to do. And if everybody does a little bit, then birds will be in a much better place for tomorrow. Um, so, so we can talk about all those things. Yeah. So, so for me, uh, I think the one example of proof that you can, well, two examples that I know of, and I'm sure you know many others, uh, that you can do something about it are the pelicans, the return of pelicans in Louisiana. We almost lost them. And it was due to pesticides, uh, primarily that uh, were causing the loss of them. And eagles, eagles were very, very threatened, and and they have come back. Um, so, so I'm sure you have some other examples of birds that have recovered. But I need to understand that process. How did that happen? And then we need to talk about the both the big ways and the little ways um, that we're going to have to um, really confront this. Um, 
it's, you know, it's, it's not just about losing the birds. It's about their interaction because everything in nature is interconnected. So when you lose birds, you're losing so much else. Right, right. And, and birds are literally the canary in the coal mine, right? Many of them are, are top predators in their ecosystems. And so when they are declining, that is indicative that the whole system is off, that, that you know, there are, there are whole processes that aren't functioning the way they should. And so they're really, you know, a bellwether for, for what's happening at our, in our environment at a, at a sort of a greater level. Um, so it's not just about the birds. You're right. It's, it's the whole ecosystem that's suffering um, because of all the different threats we've, uh, we've inflicted on so, Earth. So how have we how, – how did it happen that we were able to get pelicans to come back for one as just one example? And then let's talk about uh, what can we each of us do in our small ways. Yeah, so a lot of things happened in the 1960s and 70s, and, and a lot of that culminated around the publishing of Silent Spring with Rachel Carson's book in 1972 that really highlighted um, the issue. Silent and Spring was is, is required reading. And federal legislation was, was passed in order to, uh, to, to remove DDT from, from use. And and um, it's a it's a really good example, isn't it? Of yeah. of when when first of all she states the case, people read the book, and by the way, it really is required reading. Silent Spring by Rachel Carlson. Everybody should pick up the book. Um, yeah. And then um, and then that starts the ball rolling, and then uh, people come out, and uh, we're seeing all over the world right now how protest is playing such an important role in resisting mm-hmm. some very uh, scary trends in in our kind of geopolitical world but um uh so so we get rid of ddt and and, and that was enough to bring the pelicans back and how are they doing in, in fact though well pelicans are doing great you know it's it's a true success story and it really was sort of a unique conservation success story in the way that it was kind of a silver bullet um so it was a very simple uh problem um Although it had complex, you know, implications, but simply removing DDT from the from use um, helps the pelicans reproduce again, and also bald eagles, and also per- peregrine falcons. So a whole lot of species benefited from that. And today we have, um, you know, as far as we know, as many brown pelicans in the state of Louisiana as we ever did. So it really, really is a true success story. Of course, now we're facing all sorts of other threats. Um, and they're much more complex, much more multifaceted, and it's not going to be a simple, single um, pass of legislation. It's going to be a culmination of lots of things dealing with climate change, dealing with pesticide use, um, dealing with how we design buildings, dealing with how we, you know, utilize green spaces um, and, and, you know, create uh, more contiguous habitat rather than fragmenting it. So there's there's lots of things that need to happen, and it'll take some time. Um, but the good news is there still is time to do those actions to, to reverse the the threats of the last 50 years. So so let's 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 take these uh, one by one a little bit. So um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in terms again of what let's say I have a home and I have a garden, 
outside my house. And in my case, I have lots of trees, so I know trees are important. Planting trees is something you want to see people do. I've got plenty of them. Um, I've got a lot of palms. <laughs> I don't know whether palms are the best things for birds or not, but uh, they just they took off. I planted too many to begin with, and then they just had babies, and so my entire garden is a jungle of palms. Um, but what what can people do with their little gardens that they have, whether they have just a little patch in front of their house or they have mm-hmm. something in the back? What what can they do? Yeah, I mean, the most, the, the easiest way to say it is, is replace your non-native plants with native species. And Let's give some examples. Yeah, so, so instead of, you know, a, a palm tree or a palm bush from Central or South America or even, you know, the old world, um, you know, plant an American beauty berry, a beautiful bush that provides berries uh, that is native to Louisiana, um, That's that really sort of um, uh, fuchsia uh, berries, right? Really beautiful? They're spectacular. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're fuchsia, magenta. Yeah, they're beautiful berries. Of course, they only berry for a small portion of the year. But throughout the rest of the year, you know, they're flowering. And the foliage are actually supporting an insect community that birds depend on. So when a migratory bird is flying from South or Central America through Louisiana to get back to their breeding grounds in northern United States or Canada... Whatever tree they land on, they're depending on that tree to, to provide an insect base that will fuel that migration. And if they land on a tree that is not native to the United States um, or that region, it very well might not have the insect community to support the, that bird to, to finish its that, migration. That explains something that I really haven't been able to understand and I didn't know. I thought that birds only went for, like, the nectar and flowers. And so I have so many insects and butterflies and bees and what have you in my garden hovering around green leaves and I couldn't figure out where's the flowers. So it's not mm-hmm. just the flowers. It's, it's basically the bugs that I don't love that are on all these leaves that they're mm-hmm. eating and that, and that's sustaining them. That's the key. Exactly. And, and, and Doug Tallamy, who's an entomologist, um, has published a really great book, um, bringing bird, uh, bringing birds home. And it describes how many caterpillars a, a chickadee will need to, to raise its young, and the number is staggering. It's it's six to nine thousand caterpillars what? are needed to fledge one you know clutch of, of young. Oh my god! Uh, for, for a single pair of chickadees, so you multiply that out over you know billions of birds. You know it's it's inconceivable how many caterpillars all these birds need every year, um, and it's those native plants that pr- provide um, the, the habitat for those insects that feed those birds. What's the name of that book again? Uh, Bringing Nature Home. Bringing Nature Home. By... Yeah, it says Bringing Birds Home. It's Bringing Nature Home. Who's the author? Doug Tallamy. Say it again. Doug Tallamy. How do you spell Tallamy? Tallamy is T-A-L-L-A-M-Y. Okay. I just like to help people who are interested uh, be able to find it. Yeah, it's um, a fantastic read, an easy read, and very powerful. Okay. So, all right. One thing is obviously native plants, trees mm-hmm. you've mentioned. Um, what else can you do in, in just around your house that can make a difference? Okay. So another, um, another one that's really important is, is dealing with the issue of birds colliding into glass. Yeah. Um, and so most of the 2.9 billion birds that have disappeared, most of those are migratory birds. And unfortunately, nobody ever explained to them what glass is. And so they see the reflection or they see it as transparent, and they don't realize that it's actually a solid surface. And so flying at full speed, they can run into it. 
Um, probably almost anybody listening to this has experienced that in one way or another. I have. It's, you know, yeah. Yeah. And it's it's you know it's it's heartbreaking to see. Um, but they're really simple solutions, and the American Bird Conservancy has a great website that that um, provides solutions to those those problems. And sometimes, you know, every window is different. So sometimes it's a matter of reducing the reflection, or sometimes it's a matter of reducing the transparency. But a good general tip is to um, break down the surface of the glass, and that can be done with things like UV tape that are very hard for people to see, but because many birds see in ultraviolet. Um, they will see the tape, and if you crisscross your window with that tape in two or four inch squares, then that will be enough to prevent birds or most birds from colliding into the glass. They'll and it won't ruin surface. our view. It won't uh, uh, interrupt our view. No, I mean it, it, minimally it, it, it might. Um, and so there's also other solutions depending on how aesthetically pleasing that may or may not be for any given window at, in your home. Um, you know, sometimes it's as simple as putting a feeder um, in, a, in a proper location. So the best strategy for putting a feeder next to a window is actually putting it right up against the window or at least 50 feet away. If you have it somewhere in between, that's the kill zone, right? So if, a, if something were to flush that bird off of your feeder and it's, say, 15, 20 feet away, it will have accumulated enough speed for when it hits the window, it will actually hurt itself. Uh, if the feeder so is right there next to, to the window, it may flush into the window, but um, it's not going fast enough to hurt itself yet. Wow, that uh, I had no idea, and that's really that's good to know. Now, the UV tape for people who want to do that, where can they get that? Um, so again, the American Bird Conservancy has a lot of great um, information about that. So um, you know, just Google American Bird Conservancy window collisions, or you know bird tape or something like that, and, and, and they'll, they'll find it. Let's zoom out and talk about the bigger um, things, pesticides. It's still a big mm-hmm. issue, and, on, uh, of course, it's been a contributor to what we're dealing with in the Gulf where we have this humongous um, dead zone that's not helping yep. anybody, and uh, yep. that's been contributed to by pesticides. When are we ever going to get rid of pesticides? Nobody seems to, you know, we, we, we know it. We know they're bad, but we keep using them. I see yeah. ads on television right now for Roundups that telling people if you've been exposed to Roundup, you can, you know, claim you have claims against the company, blah, blah, blah. But I, I don't have the sense that anybody is not using them to to keep their lawns green. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, lawns, keeping lawns green is a, is a big, um, you know, expense, right? You have to put pesticides and, you know, fungicides and mow it. You have to burn gas to mow it. You have to use water to keep it green. Um, so, again, going back to, you know, if you want to reduce pesticides, a good way to start that is just to remove your lawn and put in native plants. Um, you can create some really beautiful gardens um, that are that are even more aesthetically pleasing and provide habitat for birds than a, than a lawn would. So, so for um, example, Eric, I hate to be so specific, but I, I really, I know people listen to these kind of programs and say, oh, great, good, I'm going to get rid of my lawn, and then what? What am I doing? So give people yeah. a couple examples of a couple of plants that they can uh, uh, put out instead. I, I've seen yards that no longer have lawns that just have these kind of, um, they, it looks almost like the marshes with um, with feathery kinds of plants that are beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's lots of examples. If you actually go to, um, uh, if you Google plants for birds, um, an Audubon website will pull up and you can actually punch in your zip code 
and it will provide a list of native plants to your specific area. Oh, that's so. Um, and it'll tell you which birds uh, will benefit from from those plants. Um, so it's a good way, you know, to start off and then start to figure out, okay, you know, which which plants are are, are possible. And then, of course, the challenge is going out and finding them at nurseries. Um, that's still a big a big challenge is 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 convincing nurseries that native plants are are um, a hot commodity. Um, but with more and more interest, um, you know that that will that will change. So, but a lot of the easy ones, you know, that are that are easy to find. Live oaks are fantastic. Magnolias. I mean, a lot of the native trees that that are familiar to people, those are great. But also, you know, various sunflowers. Um, you know, there's all kinds of interesting. By you know, sunflowers, and, you mean those big sunflowers with big seeds? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's some native ones as well um, that are, that are even. That are that are a little harder to find, but but are very good. Um, there are again, you know, go to it's 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 hard to think of all the all the possibilities, but go go to the the, the plants for birds page, and, and there's a lot of good steps. And of course, I'm I'm happy to consult with people if if they have questions about where to begin. Um, they can reach out to me. Well, Eric, let's before we uh, close off, which is in just a few minutes, but not quite yet. Um, tell people again, um, give them your name and the phone number and your website, sure. or your yeah, email so name, rather. Yeah. Right. My name is Eric Johnson. It's with a K, E R I K, and my email is just like my name except with the period between Eric Johnson. So E R I K dot J O H N S O N at Audubon dot org. And I work for the Audubon Society, uh, the National Audubon Society, which is not the Audubon Institute. We don't, we don't, we're not involved with the zoo uh, or the insectarium, although we appreciate what they do. Um, but yeah, so we, we, people can reach out to me. I'm, I'm the director of bird conservation for our, our state office here in Louisiana, um, based out of Baton Rouge. Um, and so, yeah, a, a great way to get started and, and learn more about these things is just get involved with some of our programs. On October 12th, we're going to have a big fit. Um, there's going to be five locations around the states. Uh, a big what? What did you call it? It's a big fit. It's an all-day bird-watching tailgate party. Um, <laughs> <laughs> of and course, so what we, tailgating. What you do is you, is you stand or sit in one location. Uh, you're not allowed to count birds outside of a 17-foot radius. And um, we're going to try to uh, see and hear as many birds as we can. Um, and our, our friends at the Orleans Audubon Society are going to be hosting a big set in the New Orleans area. And so if people are interested in learning more about that and getting involved, they can go to la, like Louisiana, .audubon.org, and then backslash big sit. And they'll find more information about um about that programming. And we're going to be updating that website over the next few days as well, so keep checking back with us. Um, that actually, I guess it sounds like fun, especially yeah. if you like to just kind of chill. Sounds like a yeah. chill event. Bring a glass of wine, bring a little bit of cheese, and just an, enjoy a few moments uh, and uh, keep your binoculars handy. You know, I, I've been seeing a lot in my yard lately, these teeny little, I guess they're nut hatches, maybe. They have like little stripes on their head. They're T9C. They're not as Quite as teeny as finches, but pretty close. Um, and there's like a flock of them. They came in. There's a bunch of them. Are they migrating? Well, 
Yeah, I'm not quite sure what you what you're seeing. It's probably not a nut hatch. There aren't any nut hatches right now in oh. the New Orleans area. So what are they? Um, They've got little striped heads. They're kind of almost. They're not as brown as sparrows. They're a little bit more what I would say, kind of like they got some little bit of white in there, a little bit of brown, a little bit of gray, a little bit of black, and they're pretty teeny. They're just you know they'd fit in the palm of my hand. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm honestly not sure. <laughs> what, so a good way to identify birds or at least get it down to the group of birds that you're looking at is to is to look at the shape of the beak. Is it a seed-eating beak that's that's short and, and stocky like a cardinal? Or is it long and thin like a wren? Or small and, you know, really short like a like a chickadee beak? Right, so, you know, bird beaks will are a good way to get birds to the right kind of group. Well, I think these little birds have, uh, I would say, um, what you described as the seed eating. They're short, short beaks. They're not long beaks. I know what you mean. So, yeah. um, a long beak, like mockingbirds have long beaks, right? Right, 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 yeah. right. Yeah. And that the, tells you a lot about what kind of the food they eat. Um, so, so short, short, stocky beak is probably, you know, like a, a finch or a sparrow or, um, something like that. Maybe, so maybe a house sparrow. Maybe they are finches. Yeah, it could be could be house finches as well. Yeah. Do you have some uh, bird noises for us to close out with, Jazz? Is that possible? So, uh, by the way, the bird noises came from what was the name of it? So Lang Elliott um, is a is a really well known uh, nature recorder, and he, he focuses a lot on birds. And he's got a wonderful website, musicofnature.com. Musicofnature.com. That's it. Because yeah, I went yeah. in, and actually, if you go, yeah, he'll he'll talk for a while, and then if you go further in, then you hear even more bird sounds. So it's something to mm-hmm. check out because it'll remind you of why this is so important. We love to hear our birds sing. Eric, I count on you because you know what's going on, and I want you to come back. We have migration season coming up, and um, so keep us in, uh, tuned in. And, um, again, the uh, the big sit, October 12th, and uh, the uh, Orleans uh, Audubon Society can give you the information, la.audubon.org. And uh, we mentioned also Bringing Birds Home. That book sounds like something people need to check out. But Plants for Birds sounds like a real critical one, right? Absolutely. Yep. Thank you so much, Eric. I really appreciate it. Come see my uh, little finch or whatever they are and tell me what they are. (laughs) (laughs) I look forward to visiting. All right. Bye. Thank you so much. Hey, uh, goodbye, everybody. Uh, we'll, We'll talk next week. Gene Nathan, Crosstown Conversations on WBOK. Thank you.